Amen. If you have your Bibles, open them up, turn them on to John chapter 4. One of the things that I did right in life, I've done a lot of things wrong in life, but one of the things I did right in life was about 17 and a half years ago, I married my wife, Stacy. Uh, if you're going to get married, I strongly suggest that you marry above your head because uh, till death do you part can be a very, very long time. So you want to make sure you marry well. And I married well with Stacy, but it seems like just yesterday I was picking her up for our first date. And I remember driving up to her house in my red Firebird, Pontiac Firebird, and, uh, you know, going up and ringing the doorbell. And how you doing? You know, and uh, and then her mom told me she wasn't quite ready yet, that she'd be there in a little bit. And, uh, you know, that was back whenever the ladies used to wear their hair really big. Remember that? You know, that's why they put sunroofs in cars, so that your hair could stick out the top and, you, you know, you'd have plenty of space. And so, uh, you know, I knew whenever I went out with her for the first time that, that I planned on getting married one day, but uh, that day was not then. You know, I figured one day I would fall in love and, and I would meet the right person. And then I met the one. And whenever I met Stacy, everything changed, and it was two and a half years later we were married because I had met the one, and whenever you meet the one, everything changes. Imagine in your mind a, a woman alone, shunned, she's exhausted, she works long hours, she barely survives each day, and so she lives her life in isolation, quietly going about her life. It's a Samaritan woman of John chapter 4. She had questions about God, but often there was nobody there to ask and nobody there that really wanted to listen. She'd been in and out of relationships throughout her life, and none of her relationships seemed to last, and she was always getting hurt. I think sometimes we forget that Jesus, too, lived a lonely existence. He had left his home to come here to earth. He was shunned by most of society, including those that were supposed to be religious within society. And just like us, he spent a lot of time working hard and he was often exhausted. The Bible records the encounter between Jesus and this woman in John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says, when Jesus knew that the Pharisees heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. He left Judea and went again to Galilee, and he had to travel through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well, and it was about six in the evening. So Jesus and the disciples are traveling from Judea, which was the southernmost province there in Palestine, up to Galilee, where Jesus was born and raised and where much of his ministry took place. Now, in between Judea and Galilee is this region known as Samaria. Now, if you were a Hebrew in the day of Christ, you had a deep-seated prejudice towards those people that lived in Samaria. In fact, there was just rampant racism that took place between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Samaritans were only half Jewish. They had their own temple. They worshipped in ways that the Jews did not approve of. And because of that, this positional uh, 
we demonize each other type relationship had taken place between the two ethnic groups. In fact, in John chapter 8 and verse 48, the Pharisees are trying to insult Jesus and they're trying to think of something really bad to say about Jesus. And so they call him a Samaritan, you know. And so, so in fact, the, the Jews uh, would, would go out of their way to avoid Samaria. If they, if they were going from the southern area to the northern area, they would sometimes even go around Samaria, even though it added uh, a lot of mileage to their journey, which usually was on foot. But they just did not want to go through Samaria. So Jesus is worn out. He's tired. How many of you are tired today? How many of you are worn out today, just a little bit exhausted? Well, uh, isn't it comforting to know that the Son of God got tired too? Okay, So God got tired too, so, so you, you have good company there. Well, in verse 7, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, for his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked him, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, Jesus is breaking all sorts of social taboos. He's traveling through Samaria, which likely elicited some groans from his disciples. And then once they get to Samaria, he sends the disciples to the Samaritan Walmart to get food. Now, that did not go over well at all. Not only do they have to go through Samaria, but now they have to provide for their economy and eat their food. And then he sits down and he talks to a woman. Now, that may not sound that that drastic to you, but in that culture, a man did not speak to a woman unless her family was present, unless he felt like he had permission to speak to the woman. And not only is he speaking to a woman, but he's speaking to a Samaritan woman. So he's going across the racial divide. Not only is he speaking to a Samaritan woman, but it's about 6 o'clock in the evening. All the moms in minivans with exercise clothing had arrived at the well much earlier that morning. All the cool moms had already come and gone. This lady had worked hard all day long, and it was considered to be part of the social understanding that those that drew water in the evening uh, were of ill repute or perhaps had been shunned by the other ladies within the community. So then he continues... He asked her for a drink of water. Well, she likely did not have a stack of red Solo cups. She likely had one pitcher. And so he asked her for a drink of water. Can I have a drink of water out of the same pitcher that you drink from, out of the same pitcher that you handle each and every day? And so naturally, having broken all these social taboos, this Samaritan woman was a little taken back. How is it that you are asking me for this? Well, in verse 10, Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God who is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep, so where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again, ever. In fact, the water I 
In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up within him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. Now, notice how Jesus is leading this woman into a spiritual conversation that would ultimately lead to her embracing Jesus as Lord and Savior. I think sometimes we forget or neglect the reality that one of the calls of Christ is that we will be the hands and feet of Jesus, and where we go, uh, we meet people, and we have opportunities to engage them in conversations about the gospel, and the most effective method of leading new believers into relationship with Christ, historically the most effective method for doing that has been through one-on-one relationships. And so notice that Jesus uses a natural approach. He says to her, can I have a drink of water? He also meets her at a point of common interest. They were both hot. They were both thirsty. They were both tired. Who wouldn't like a cup of cool, refreshing water in that situation. So the conversation begins in a very natural fashion. He meets her where she is. He also kept his focus all throughout this conversation. The Samaritan woman keeps trying to throw out religious gotcha questions to get Jesus to, to chase a rabbit. And you find when you talk to people about God, they have this, this, these lists of questions to try to kind of get you off track and, and chase that rabbit. But Jesus continually kept his focus on the woman and her needs. And then he guided the conversation into the spiritual realm. He tells her, if you knew of the gift of God that you have in front of you, he tells her about the living water that whenever she drinks from it, she'll never get thirsty again. So he leads her into a conversation about her spiritual well-being. Well, in verse 16, he tells her, go call your husband and come back here. Now, that would be natural. He's going to tell her about the living water. Uh, He's already broken the social taboo of talking to this woman. But now he says, okay, go ahead and get your husband and come back here. To which she responds, I don't have a husband. And now Jesus begins to flash some of his uh, divinity. He says, "Uh, you have correctly said, I don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. (laughs) I see that you know a little bit of something about me. Now, Jesus here brings this woman face to face with both her sins and her past. He didn't just lead her to the living water without also helping her recognize that there were some things from which she needed to turn. She was living with a man that was not her husband. She was living as if she were married before she was married. And she had also been married five times. So she had been in and out of relationships throughout her life. Now, a lot of times people really, and I've heard a lot of sermons where the preachers really condemn this woman and really come down hard upon her. And certainly some of the things that she had done were wrong and they should not be minimized Yet at the same time, whenever I try to dive into the soul, the persona of this lady, I think I see a girl who really wanted to be loved. I think I see the heart of a girl that had probably been through a lot of hurt. No telling what she had experienced as she was growing up. Her father may not have been there. I'm told that 
It was pretty common back in this day for young girls to be sexually abused and perhaps she was abandoned and somewhere in the course of life she had been hardened by life. And yet somewhere within her there was the heart of a little girl who just wanted to be loved and wanted someone to walk the journey with her. And so she would seek it. She would seek that love. She would seek that affection from whatever man would be willing to give it to her. In life, we need to realize that the opposite of pain is pleasure. And we often run from the pains of our past by seeking pleasure from unhealthy people in unhealthy ways. And in doing so, whenever we try to run from the past by seeking pleasure from unhealthy people in unhealthy ways, it does nothing but add to the pain of our life. I like it whenever we have guests at Murphy Road. I I always enjoy meeting them, introducing myself to them. And one of the little lines that I'll say when I meet new people at Murphy Road is I'll say, this is really a great church except for the preaching. And... uh, And most of the time they figure out I'm the preacher, and so they chuckle a little bit when I say that. But every now and then, somebody doesn't realize I'm the preacher. And so I get up on stage, and I look out there, and I see their face when they realize that I was the one that said this is a great church except for the preaching. It's wonderful. It's priceless to look at their face. Well, I imagine that whenever Jesus really began flashing his his deity here and said, okay, you have said it right, you know, you're you're really doing some things that you shouldn't hear, and he deals with her sin, that that her face must have really uh, been quite the sight. And immediately her defenses go up. And she starts changing the subject and she starts asking religious gotcha questions and she starts trying to push Jesus away. She says in verse 20, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, yet you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, this is a pinnacle passage in the Scriptures. I could preach from these verses that I just read for a a long time, but I don't think that you would like that too much if I kept you past lunch. So uh, let me briefly talk about three uh, big truths from these verses. Recognize that a lot of sermons are preached from these verses, and in fact, I, I, I... Hesitate to say this, but a lot of bad sermons are preached from these verses, okay? So uh, here, here are three truths from this conversation. Number one, the heart of worship is more important than the location of worship. She was trying to say to Jesus, should I worship in this temple or the Jewish temple? You say that's where you worship. We say this is where you worship. And Jesus basically says, no, the heart of worship is more important than the location of worship. A lot of people get caught up in the idea that the only place that you worship is whenever you gather in this room to worship, that this is what worship is. Uh, others get caught up in this concept that I worship when I go to church. So if I've gone to church, then I've worshiped. Well, Jesus says, no, worship really begins and takes root in the heart. And so you can come to church every week. You can go through the religious actions, but that doesn't mean that you're worshiping. Worshiping comes from 
within. And what happens here in a gathering of believers as we sing songs and we learn about the Lord and we worship God is we then go out and we live lives of worship in our homes, in our communities, in our places of work, in our schools, wherever we go. It's always an act of worship because we're seeking to bring glory and honor to God in everything that we say and do. Secondly, Jesus teaches her that worship is to be a spiritual moment. He says true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. Uh, The word spirit has to do with the spiritual emotive side of us. Now, (coughs) Samaritans, I breathed in wrongly. Samaritans had a very exuberant style of worship. They often worshiped with a lot of emotion and excitement, and their, their, their worship was marked by spirit. And so Jesus says, this is right. I mean, uh, worshiping God should elicit within you passion and emotion. I think a lot of times uh, in the United States, because we live in an empirical, rational kind of society, we've kind of pushed down our emotions. And, and the more conservative you, you tend to move uh, as far as the region in which you live, the more suppressed our emotions often tend to be uh, because we become a little bit more factual kind of uh, just just give me the scriptures that's all I really need and Jesus reminds us no there is a spiritual connection that takes place in worship but there's also truth that must take place in worship true worship number three is grounded in truth it's possible to be a very sincere worshiper but be worshiping the wrong thing and so the scriptures teach us this is who God is And this is what he has revealed to us. This is what he has said is right. This is what he said is wrong. This is how we're to worship. And so we worship with the spirit within us. There's an exuberance. There's a passion. There's a connection. But we also worship in the truth of what God has revealed to us in Scripture. True worshipers worship God in spirit and in truth. Well, the woman says to Jesus, I know the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. And when he comes... He will explain everything to us. I am he, Jesus told her, the one speaking to you. So the lady, after she asks her religious gotcha question and Jesus gives her more than she bargained for, she basically says, okay, okay, I know the Messiah is coming and whenever he comes, he's going to explain everything to us and fill in all the gaps. And Jesus says, hey, I'm the one you've been looking for. Now we're in this series called The Big Picture. And so what we've been trying to do is put together the big concepts or the big overarching picture of Scripture so that you have a better understanding of how the Bible all fits together. Now, we began all the way back at creation. In the beginning, God created. And whenever he looked at his creation, he said, this is good. And then into the creation slithered sin. There was a fall, a fall of humankind, a fall of creation so that all of us rebel against God and turn to our own ways. And the world in which we live is to some degree fractured. It's not uh, where it should be. Uh, uh, God, God is working to restore it. And so we live in a world that has injustice, and we live in a world that has sickness, and we live in a world where we say to ourselves, something's just not right. Now, as you begin to journey through Scripture, you find that God made some promises to people. These are called the covenants of Scripture. 
And in those promises, God began to reveal to us what his plan is for humankind. The first promise was made to a man by the name of Noah back in Genesis chapter 9. Right after the great flood, God promises Noah, I will never again destroy the earth by water. Whenever you read in 2 Peter chapter 3, you begin to realize that that was referring to the fact that God's plan for humankind was not their destruction, but God's plan was for redemption. And so the promise made to Noah points to the one, to the Messiah, who would live and die so that we might have redemption in our lives. Well, when you get to Genesis chapter 12, God makes a promise to a man by the name of Abram. He tells Abram that from you, I'm going to grow a great nation. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to bless you. And all those peoples of the earth will be blessed because of you. Abram's name is changed to Abraham, which means father of many nations. And that promise that God made to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12 points to Christ, the one through whom salvation comes to all. Well, we move on into Exodus, Exodus chapter 19, and God calls Moses into a private meeting. This is after the great exodus out of Egypt where Moses uh, establishes himself as one of the greatest liberators who ever lived. It's right after the Red Sea. They reach Mount Sinai, and God calls Moses into a private meeting with himself. He gives Moses the law. He gives him the Ten Commandments, and he makes a promise to Moses. He says, those who hear my voice and obey me, they will be my dearly loved people. And that promise that was made to Moses, it points to the one. It points to the adoption that we have in Christ, that because of the one named Christ, when we call upon him and confess him as Savior and Lord, we are God's children to him, to them that believed. He gave them the right to become children of God. The scriptures say that those who believe are joint heirs with Christ into the promise that God has for his people. Then you find in 2 Samuel chapter 7, there is a great king by the name of David, and God makes a promise to him too. He says, your descendants will be on their throne forever and ever, and Christ comes through the line of David. He is one of David's descendants, and that promise made to David, it points to heaven, and it points to the fact that whoever believes in the one, whoever believes in Jesus, will not perish, as John 3.16 says, but have everlasting life. Well, as you continue to go deeper into the Old Testament, you come across some prophets. You come across men like Joel. You come across men like Isaiah, men like Jeremiah, who talked about the one. They talked about how one day God is going to send one. And Jeremiah said in chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, that God was going to make a covenant. He was going to bring a new covenant. And there would be one come who would bring about the forgiveness of sin, that we would have a new heart because of the one that God was sending in Jesus' time. Everyone looked forward to the one day, that one day when the Messiah would come and explain everything, that one day when God would set us free from our bondage and the Messiah, the one that we have been waiting for, would come. And Jesus looks at this Samaritan woman and he says, I am the one. All of Scripture has been pointing to me. 
I am the one that everything has been leading towards. The one standing before you is the Messiah. I am promising you living water that changes you from the inside out. Now, ironically, the biggest obstacle for many when it came to Jesus is that the mission of the Messiah was different from what they had envisioned. In Jesus' day, uh, they expected the Messiah to come and set up a political kingdom. They, They were under Roman domination. They thought the Messiah would lead them out of slavery. Jesus didn't tell people just to follow his teachings. He called them to believe in him as Savior and Lord. Now, within Christianity, this is one of our distinctives because if you look at other major world religions, the dominant figure comes onto the scene and he leaves some type of scripture behind. And the way that you become a follower, a believer in those faiths is that you you follow the scriptures. You follow the teachings that the uh, dominant figure left behind. Jesus says that the way that you become a follower is to believe in him, to put your faith in him, to trust him. In him. And the way that you follow the teachings is to be empowered through his grace that comes to you whenever you place your faith in him. It's one of our distinctives as Christians. Now, something happened between verses 26 and 28. This Samaritan woman began to have a change of heart. She met the one, and when she met the one, it changed everything. In verse 28, the woman left her water jar, went into town, and told the men, Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they left the town and made their way to him. I wish we had time today to to look at the disciples' reaction because it's priceless. But you find that Jesus stayed in the village for several days and that the Bible says many people believed in him as the Messiah, as the Savior. A lot of us, when it comes to spiritual matters, we are spiritual one-dayers. We say things like, one day I'll get saved, one day I'll believe in Christ, one day I'll get baptized, one day I'll deal with that. I know I shouldn't be doing that, but one day I'll deal with it when the timing's right. One day I'll get serious about God, I'll, I'll start growing in my walk, I'll, I'll start reading the Bible and praying and really getting serious about all this one day. When it comes to ministry, we think to ourselves, you know, uh, one day I'll serve, one day I'll get involved when the church does things like these buckets. One day I'll give. One day I'll give to the offering. One day I'll try to resource ministry and try to help the congregation go forward and the ministry go outward. So I have this question. What does it take for one day to become today? In your cynicism, you say, okay, this is the part where he tries to sell us something, right? What does it take for your one day to become today? And my answer is this. You have to fall in love with the one. The thing that changes everything is when your heart falls in love with the one who changes everything. When you quit holding back from him and you give him the totality of yourself. You ask me, what does God really want from me? He wants you. He wants you to place your faith and your trust in Him. And you don't grow spiritually until you start worshiping in spirit and truth the one who can grow you spiritually. 
You don't grow spiritually simply by showing up or trying harder. You grow spiritually when you really worship in spirit and truth the one who has the power to grow you spiritually. And so this is what I want for you today. I want you to make one day today. Make this the day that you say, okay, I'm going to give my heart to Christ. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to I'm going to love the one that can change everything and give your heart to Christ. Now, it may be that that's the first time you've ever done that. We call that getting saved. It's the beginning step of faith in your walk with the Lord. And so it may be that today is the day that you need to become a Christian and give your heart to Christ for the very first time. If that's where you are, come see me. You can come see me during the final song. You can see me after the service. I'd be glad to ask, answer questions as best I can and help you with that so that if the Lord's leading you to make that decision, you can make that decision today. If for whatever reason you can't find me, I, I'm confident there's somebody in your life that you know walks with the Lord. And talk to them about it. Ask your questions. People want to help you in making that decision. They want to work with you as you go through the process of what does it mean to be a follower of Christ. For others of you, maybe you've gone to church for a long time. But for whatever reason, there's been some parts that you've held back from God. And so today is a day where you need to give your heart to God anew. Make one day today. And like Noah, when you give your heart to God, you discover that God's plan for you is redemption, not destruction. Like Abram, you discover that God wants to use your life to be a blessing to others. When you give your heart to God, like Moses, you discover that you are part of God's family. And like David, you discover a love from which nothing and no one can separate you from because it endures forever. And like Jeremiah you find one that can give you forgiveness from your past, purpose in your present, hope for the future, as He renews your heart and starts over from within. God's asking for your heart. He's the one that can change everything. Would you stand with me, please, as we bow our heads in prayer? Heavenly Father, we come before You, and we thank You, Lord, for the one that changes everything. And we pray, Lord, that we might be more than religious people that try to treat other people nicely and do good things. But we pray, Father, that we might be worshipers that love you and that give ourselves to you in both spirit and in truth. And we thank you, Lord, that we look back through the pages of Scripture and we see your promises and that we can know that just as you have kept your promises in the past, you keep your promises today and tomorrow, that you are faithful in all ways. So help us, Lord, to realize that when you call us to faith, you are not calling us to take just a blind leap, but you are calling us to take a leap of faith with the confidence that you have proved yourself faithful over centuries to millions of people as the God of the universe. And so it is you that we worship love and serve and we pray lord that we might never hold our hearts back from you lord show us areas in our life that need changing shine your light into the dark into the dark crevices of our hearts and show us lord how we can begin anew through your power and through your wisdom it's in jesus name we pray and worship Amen.